Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm the Deputy Director here, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you very warmly to LSE for tonight's very special celebration of the life and more so the work tonight of Sir William Arthur Lewis, or Arthur Lewis as he was better known. Given that tonight's event, which we've called Understanding Economic Development, is a special occasion, I'm going to take a little bit longer than normal with my introductory remarks. Many of you, I think, will know the basic story about W. Arthur Lewis as an economist, a Nobel Prize-winning economist. Arthur Lewis was born in St. Lucia in January uh, 1915, his parents having moved there about a dozen years before from Antigua. He joined LSE as an 18-year-old in 1933 and graduated four years later with first-class honours, a number of school prizes, and immediate entry to the PhD programme in economics. Just one year later, in 1938, having impressed all of his principal advisers, that was Arnold Plant, Lionel Robbins and Friedrich von Hayek, quite a trio, Lewis was offered an assistant lecturer position at the school, becoming LSE's first reported black faculty member. During the war, Lewis really moved more from industrial economics towards what would become development economics, the field which he made his own during the time of his professorship at Manchester University, really, a chair which he occupied from 1947 to 1957. It was at Manchester that Lewis wrote his great book, The Theory of Economic Growth, from 1955, which I'm sure we'll be discussing tonight, and his 1954 work on unlimited supplies of labour. And both of these won him in due course the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1979, by which time he was at Princeton. Actually, he taught Danny, I just found out, uh, before we came in. Perhaps you'll share some thoughts on that, Danny. And he'd already been knighted. That, I think, is the well-known story about Arthur Lewis. But there is another story, because that was only one part of the story about Arthur Lewis, the man. We should note, too, uh, that during his time at the LSE, Lewis regularly accounted overt racism on the streets of London. He reported being stared at on a daily basis. And according to his biographer, Robert Tignor, the draft contract of Lewis's appointment letter as LSE sought originally to prevent Lewis from personally supervising undergraduates, although he could lecture to undergraduates, something happily that our then-director, Carl Saunders, removed from the contract that he was finally given. Worse, in 1947, shortly before he moved to Manchester, Lewis, who'd been selected for a chair at Liverpool University, was blocked from taking it up by the VC of that institution, precisely on the basis, according to the biography, that Liverpool was not London and was not yet ready uh, for Lewis, a black academic. Throughout his life, then, uh, Arthur Lewis was forced to think deeply, not just about economic development in a macro sense, and he would go on to work closely with Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, amongst many other countries. But also, I think, at the more personal level, where he insistently challenged racial, racial ideologies which sought to deny that black men and women were fully human or could be expected to develop themselves. It's also interesting, I think, that Lewis's friends and mentors at LSE and in London uh, were not only economists but included economic historians anthropologists and political scientists, particularly T.S. Ashton, Malinowski and Lasky here at the school. 
But also he was very friendly with key figures in the Pan-Africanist movement in London, including Marxists like C.L.R. James and George Padmore. Like many black colonial subjects, Lewis had to make his way in the academy and public life, facing hurdles uh, that mostly his white colleagues did not, and to which many were seemingly oblivious. Now, I don't know to what extent we'll get on to discuss Lewis more broadly tonight, and Danny and I were just sharing a story about Lewis in respect of race earlier on. And certainly the number of black professors in the UK remains alarmingly low even now. But we will certainly be examining in great detail his contributions to development economics and development policy. Now, leading the discussion, and I'm going to sit with them, are, I'm delighted to say, two of the most eminent development economists of the present era. Sir Paul Collier, furthest away from me, is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University and Co-Director of Oxford Centre for the Study of African Economies. Paul is also a Director of the Joint LSE-Oxford International Growth Centre, mainly headquartered here and co-funded by DFID, and an ex-Director of the Research Development Department at the World Bank. I first introduced Paul on stage, I think, late in 2007, when he had recently published his book, The Bottom Billion, and I was astonished that it was in the top 100 in hardback on the Amazon bestseller list at that time. Not bad going for an academic. Our second guest is Danny Roderick, who currently is the Albert O. Hirschman Professor in the School of Social Science at the Institute of Advanced Studies, which is in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Later this year, I think in July... In July, Danny is taking up the position of Ford Foundation Professor of International Political Economy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Danny is also a centennial professor here at LSE with links to the European Institute and the Department of Economics. Like Paul, Danny is also published very widely in the fields of international economics and globalization, economic growth and development, and political economy. He is the author of The Globalization Paradox from 2011 and One Economics, Many Recipes from 2007, among many other books. Dan is also well known, I think, for his critique of the geography thesis as developed by Jeffrey Sachs and for his attempts to understand the space for institutional change by means of analytical country narratives. Lastly, before I get us going, can I say that LSE is very pleased tonight to welcome distinguished guests from the St. Lucian High Commission and also to announce following discussions with members of Sir Arthur Lewis's family that LSE will be honouring the life and work of Sir Arthur Lewis by endowing at the LSE a W. Arthur Lewis Chair of Development Economics. I'm delighted to say that the first holder of this chair is sitting with us tonight. I'll ask him to stand up and wave. Professor Tim Besley. Tim is already a school professor at LSE and his work in the fields of development economics and state building, including, and notably, I think, his book with Torsten Persson, Persson, uh, Pillars of Prosperity, make him a truly wonderful first incumbent of the Lewis Chair. Many congratulations, Tim. That's great news. So the format that we've adopted is um, Danny and Paul are going to kick off in a fairly informal way. They're going to speak for 15 or 20 minutes each and riff off one another, no doubt, and then we're going to open it up 
to the audience. And I've been told, unusually tonight, we're going to try and finish at quarter to eight rather than eight o'clock. But there will be, I hope, plenty of time for questions. So thanks, everybody, and enjoy. Who's going to start? <laughs> OK, I'll, I'll kick us off. I, um, you know, I was never taught by uh, Sir Arthur Lewis, um, but I did teach... Uh, Tim Besley. So it's nice to see the lads doing well. <laughs> um, I, Lewis's great intellectual contribution to development economics was, was the concept of dualism and trying to, to flesh that out and look at its consequences. Um, and um, uh, so I, I, in my few minutes, I want to, to try and... Um, explore what, what, what a modern meaning of dualism might be, um, some distinction between the modern economy and the traditional economy, um, and, and then try and apply that to a, a dualism that, um, that Lewis didn't really uh, anticipate, which was that part of the developing world would grow like Topsy would really catch up with the developed world, namely East Asia, whereas another part of the developing world, which at the time Lewis wrote, was no more poor, no less poor, Africa, um, hasn't at all caught up. And so that's a, a second form of dualism. Right? So we've got modern, traditional, and the, this, this polarisation between part of the developing world doing so well that it's completely historically unprecedented and juxtapose against that another huge area of the world um, that really hasn't caught up. So the, the, the concept I'm going to try and present um, in, in trying to flesh out what is the difference between modern and traditional is what I'm going to call an effective organisation. I'm going to say that poor countries are desperately short of effective organisations. And now let me tell you what, what effective organisations are. Um, they are organisations which make ordinary people radically more productive than, uh, than other organisations. So um, how, do, or, how do effective organisations perform this miracle of making ordinary people radically more productive they do it by three basic ingredients um, one is scale so um, they make people more productive by harnessing scale um, Adam Smith was the first sort of witness to um, the power of economies of scale in production and the, the scale at the time was, was water power why were factories built in the first instance in order to um, take, the, take advantage of the scale economies of water power? Um, the original spinning jennies and all that sort of thing didn't need scale. They could be put in individual cottages. But to run them with water power, you needed to bring them together. So, the, so one ingredient, scale. The second ingredient, which Smith also noticed and wrote about a lot, was specialisation. In the, the pre-industrial economy, people worked in cottage industries at home, 
very small scale, everybody doing everything, very little specialization. And by doing scale and specialization, you get a miracle of productivity. But it's only a miracle of productivity conditional upon one further, further element, because scale and specialization create a problem in an organization or a potential problem, which is motivation. If you're working on a, a peasant farm holding, there are two of you working, um, you've got a pretty strong incentive to work. You don't work, you don't eat. Um, but if you're in an organization of 2,000, then first of all, there's scope for, for free riding, maybe. The output of the organization continues whether or not you work. And because you're specialized, the power of specialization depends upon you being able to coordinate with other people who are specialized in different things. And that coordination requires cooperation. So motivation becomes the problem of a large organization with, with specialized people. You've got to persuade people to cooperate and still to work. Um, in a nutshell, I think the, the countries that have stayed poor, and there are many of them, um, have failed both in the private sector and in the public sector to provide many effective organizations. In a nutshell, the private sector, in a, certainly a lot of the countries I work in, the private sector has neither scale nor specialization. The public sector, almost by definition, has scale and specialization, but it's failed on that challenge of motivation. The public sector workforce, by and large, hasn't, uh, isn't motivated. And so, both in the private sector and the public sector, for different reasons, you, you're grossly short of effective organizations. Now, so that's the proposition, and then I'll spend just a few minutes spelling out why the scarcity of effective organizations in the private sector, and then a little bit on the public sector. So the private sector, the, the ingredient which is needed for scale and specialization in the private sector in poor countries, we think of development happening in a country, but actually development happens in a city. And poor countries need viable cities in order to house effective organizations. Cities are where you get the scale and the specialization happening, by and large. Um, but cities um, aren't just spontaneous creations. Cities require a lot of development planning. One of the things Arthur Lewis wrote about, actually, was development planning. He was a believer in development planning, which radically went out of fashion um, but there is an irreducible need for some development planning, and you see it at the level of cities. How does a city perform the miracle of productivity in effective organizations? It does so by performing actually a triple productivity miracle. One is it gets firms to cluster together, and the scale economies and the specialization occur not just at the level of an individual firm, but at the level of a cluster. That's something that we've discovered post-Arthur Lewis. It's the new economic geography. There's Tony Venables. He's responsible for some of that. Um, 
So scale and specialization, not just at the level of the firm, but at the level of the cluster. And that massively increases productivity. That's one source of, of high productivity in effective cities. Second source is matching of workers to firms, to jobs. A good city has a lot of labour market matching because people are all different and jobs are all a bit different. And so you need a matching process. Good matching raises productivity. And the third productivity miracle that happens in cities is if you've got a lot of density of demand, a lot of consumer power all clustered together spatially, then in the the sector that as economists we call the non-tradable sector, the the sector that produces only locally, those firms can also reap economies of scale and specialization. So that's the triple miracle in a good city. But what makes a good city, what enables that triple miracle to happen, is high connectivity. The firms in a cluster need to be connected to each other, the workers need to be connected to the firms, and the consumers need to be, connect, need to be packed together and connected to the non-tradable uh, services uh, and producers. Connectivity doesn't happen automatically. It's a function of policies. There are two big ingredients into connectivity. One is good transport infrastructure, and the other is high density of occupation, of residential occupation. And so a good development planning at the level of a city achieves both of those. They're not alternatives, they're complements. You get good transport infrastructure, and you get high density of occupation. If you go to the typical African city, it's got neither. It doesn't have transport infrastructure. Take a town like Freetown, capital of Sierra Leone. I don't know if you've been there, Danny, but it's got the transport infrastructure planned for a population of 35,000. And it's now got, I don't know, about a million. And so you can't move in Freetown. They're just the basic things like roads are not there. And because Africans... Governments didn't do the development planning, didn't put the transport infrastructure in first, the cost of retrofitting once people have settled is enormous. So we don't have the transport infrastructure, nor do we have the residential density. Let me tell you what a a lower-middle-income city would look like with residential density. Of course, it would have a, a gradient of of height, the higher buildings in the city centre, but the, the sort of benchmark norm would be an apartment block of four or five storeys. Not higher than that, because if you go higher than that, you need lifts, elevators, that raises costs. But with a four or five storeys, you pack a lot of demand density into a small area. And the ground floor of that building can be small business so that you service the demand that you've built on top with a lot of jobs and small businesses at the bottom. If you go to the typical African city, not only has it got no transport infrastructure worth speaking of, but people live in slums. They feel crowded, but there isn't actually much economic density of demand there. It's poor people in single-storey dwellings. 
Why are they in single-storey dwellings? Again, it's a failure of development planning at the, at the level of the, of the city. There isn't the legal infrastructure. There isn't the financial support. There are, there's over-regulation of building uh, codes. So across Africa, they got the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, which was generated here. Um, and if, uh, if Britain had had the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act in 1847, um, London would look the informal slum that a typical African city looks today because um, it's not possible to build housing that is affordable for average household incomes um, uh, at uh, costs that, that meet those, those high building regulations. So it's the failure of cities because of the failure of development planning that has led to an environment where you can't get many viable, effective organisations in the private sector. And finally, let me turn to the public sector. Because the public sector in Africa is also chronically short of effective organisations, not because they lack scale and specialisation, but because they've failed on the internalisation uh, process. And um, Oriana has been working on this sort of subject um, very successfully. But... Um, it's, uh, it's, it's unfortunately, uh, if you look at across the public sector, you find um, an anomaly that you get very low rates of, uh, of commitment. Right? Teachers only turn up. They have a contract for seven hours a day in Uganda. The average working day is two hours. Um, nurses steal drugs and things like that. The, the paradox is that these are very easy these are very intrinsically satisfying activities. Now, economics has had two solutions to um, that problem of motivation. And the one that we've obsessed on for the last 40 years is, is the principal agent approach, that you, you have high-powered incentives linked to monitored performance. And in some contexts, that works. But the public sector, quite generally, is a sector, typically is a sector where um, it's hard to monitor and high-powered incentives are divisive. And so a more, generally a more successful approach in the public sector is an approach which is just only recently being explored in economics, and that is trying to get people to internalise the objectives of the organisation. And just as, just as there have been Nobel laureates who've cracked the principal agent problem, people like James Murley's, there are Nobel laureates who've worked on that internalization problem, and the, the foremost among them is George Akerlof. Um, and I recommend his little book, Identity Economics, which is uh, extolling the virtues of how to achieve internalization. And the paradox of the public sector in Africa is that even with intrinsically very motivating things, for some reason, which we don't, I think, yet understand very well, that internalization process hasn't been sufficiently achieved. So I've tried to start from giving a, a modern twist to dualism. Um, let me finish by saying, um, if we push this, um, there's, there's one other thing that, that Lewis didn't take very far forward. Lewis was writing in the 1950s before the age of globalization. 
I'm next to the great exponent of the consequences of globalization. But I think in a a nutshell, what globalization did was that in countries which are able to break in to effective organizations, which basically meant East Asia, they could now succeed not just on a national scale, but those same effective organizations could go global. And that supercharged the growth process. But the fact that some poor countries broke into the global market meant that other poor countries couldn't because the the countries that broke in first got the clusters and that cut out the poor countries that didn't get, get in first. An exciting development, which I hope we'll talk about together in a bit, is that at last... Um, China is no longer super competitive because its wages in coastal areas have risen a lot. And so there may be a chance for Africa to break in, but maybe not. On that note, let me hand over to you, Danny. It's, a, it's always a great pleasure to be at the LSE, and it's, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary pleasure to be at this event uh, commemorating uh, uh, Sir Arthur Lewis uh, on his the centenary of his, of his uh, uh, birth. Um, as as uh, Stuart mentioned, I, uh, I was lucky enough to be um, his student when I went to uh, uh, Princeton as a master's student. Um, I managed to be there um, during the... Uh, the last few years of his uh, teaching career, and uh, I, I did take his course on on development economics, um, and I still have uh, sort of my my lecture notes uh, from from his lectures. Uh, I remember many things uh, from that period, but you know one thing that sticks with me still uh, that I don't even have to go back and, and reread those notes is something that he said at at some point about. Um, um, sort of how, how to be successful in development. And, and uh, he said, uh, well, you know, there's, there, there are three things that uh, if you happen to get them, there's no way uh, you cannot grow. Um, and the three things were, he said, um, a, a decent secondary education system, adequate rainfall, and good government. Um, and, and, and it's interesting that, uh, I mean, sort of at, at the time, it seemed to me the bit about good government was perhaps just the, the filler. Uh, but, of course, now with the, you know, the institutions having come back, the importance of institutions, um, sort of that was, uh, you know, very much uh, obviously something he was very uh, well aware of. And I'll say um, a couple more words about that uh, in a minute. Rather than uh, sort of go through uh, his, uh, his uh, accomplishments and his writings, what I thought I would do somewhat in the same spirit as Paul is uh, reflect on his work uh, from the perspective of the kinds of things that, uh, um, that um, excite us about development, uh, development economics today um, and ask the question how um, his work actually informs our current discussions. Um, in... Um, First question, uh, fundamental to uh, growth and development economics, is, is what is the essence uh, of growth and development? Um, and here, his message about the importance of uh, structural dualism uh, um, is, is absolutely uh, essential. And it's interesting 
that it has now returned to the core of thinking about growth economics um, in a way that it had been absent um, uh, for a number of decades, um, because in a way sort of it was a bit unlucky for Sir Arthur that um, uh, just shortly after he wrote his piece on um, economic development with unlimited supplies of labor, um, another young upstart called um, uh, Bob Solo uh, did his model of uh, his neoclassical model of economic growth. Um, and the, uh, and the, the main distinguishing feature of, uh, um, of Solo's model was that it was basically um, a single-sector model. It was just you could treat the whole economy as just one big aggregate. Um, and um, uh, and that, that model took off. It, was, it became the central model along with this, all its derivatives uh, and the central prism through which processes of economic growth uh, would, be, would be perceived. Um, it's only relatively recently that I think people who work um, in growth economics have come back um, as a central preoccupation of growth economics um, to the question of what actually happens, how do we think about growth economics and growth policy, when in fact there are very big heterogeneities, very significant heterogeneities in production structure, precisely actually of the kind that, um, that Arthur Lewis examined uh, in that 1954 piece, where he had um, identified um, uh, differences, um, gaps in uh, labor productivity between the traditional and the modern sectors as being essentially a key um, feature of development, developing e economics. Um, now, it's interesting that, that a lot of the discussion of this uh, piece revolved around the question of whether, in fact, um, the marginal product of labor uh, was really zero in the traditional sector, and, and uh, there was a huge literature on that that, that followed. Uh, and that, in many ways, is actually was a distraction from the central contribution of his paper, which is that, uh, that the central issue is this gap, uh, this wedge, uh, between uh, marginal productivities, or to put it more precisely, the social uh, value marginal product of labor, uh, in the traditional versus the margin versus the um, the modern sectors, and that's really the key thing. It's it's a reality that anybody who visits developing countries and doesn't look at it from the perspective of the one sector neoclassical growth model uh, immediately becomes aware of uh, the moment that they step off uh, the airplane. Um, and and what he realized and he un underscored was that this structural duality that these economies. Uh, were divided into um, a large traditional component and a, and a small modern component with very different productivities was both an explanation for why poor countries were poor and not rich, uh, an explanation because it said they are poor because uh, most of the labor is locked up in the traditional part of the economy at low labor productivity, but at the same time it was a uh, a, 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 it could be turned into an advantage because it could become a mechanism for growth and development. It was an opportunity. That is that by moving your resources, in particular uh, your labor, uh, into uh, the modern sector uh, where productivity was much higher, uh, you could generate a process of economic growth and development. And he was quite optimistic that this is going to be the path that the developing countries, the developing world was going to, uh, to, uh, to, to take. 
Um, and that's a central insight that, that the moment that whenever you're analyzing developing countries in a, in a sort of um, uh, uh, as a whole, that you need to take that structural heterogeneity and productivity into account is a central insight that is very much uh, at the core of our thinking about development today. Um, the second set of, of, of questions that we talk a lot about um, uh, is, is economic globalization. Paul talked about that a little bit. Um, uh, even though in, the, um, in his original 1954 article, uh, Sir Arthur didn't talk a lot about the international economy, uh, in fact, in, in his later work, um, the uh, globalization and its consequences was a key preoccupation. Uh, that might seem weird, uh, because globalization sort of uh, is a more recent phenomenon. But, of course, he was talking about the first era of globalization, uh, the period between 1870 and 1913. Uh, he did a lot of uh, uh, path-breaking statistical work on the terms of trade, on relative productivities in different parts of the world. Um, and um, he uh, ended up producing some of the best work, I think, um, on um, the great divergence on why the world got divided between a rich uh, core and a poor periphery uh, during that period of economic globalization. He emphasized the role of um, the uh, different products that the North and the South were producing as a key uh, mechanism uh, that pro produced this divergence, uh, the specialization of tropical countries in, uh, in tropical products um, uh, and, and um, those of the, the rich in more industrial products. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that his take on uh, globalization uh, is, uh, if you read it today, sounds uh, very, very contemporary. Um, he was very much against the view that, um, that countries should you know, think of, of trade and globalization as an engine of growth. He said you know, that, you know, Globalization can certainly help, but the hard work has to be done at home. Uh, that he said that that the the essence has to be high productivity, uh, both in agriculture and industry at home. And it's only when you have that uh, can you then take advantage of globalization. In fact, the lesson of China is 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 very much uh, the same. Uh, that that uh, China succeeded in globalization largely because uh, it was able to uh, get its own effective organizations uh, to use Paul's language uh, and and to um, to uh, to reform its economy um, and to stimulate uh, the kind of modern industries that uh, uh, Sir Arthur was talking about, uh, which then could be leveraged um, uh, with on the global stage on the global stage with. Uh, uh, with globalization. Um, third, I would say uh, one of the issues that we discuss a lot today is the role of the market and the state. Um, and again, thinking about the respective roles of the market and the state have gone through various uh, cycles and the pendulum has swung one way or another. And it's really refreshing to go back and read um, Arthur Lewis on this because he was... Uh, a, pragmat, a, a pragmatic person on this. It was entirely non-ideological. Um, uh, sort of towards the end of his career, um, sort of a new, newer generation of development ec economists would give him a, a hard time 
because of his work on development planning, and it seemed like you know he was you know giving a lot of role uh, for the state. Um, and with the turn towards the markets and uh, in, the, in the late 70s and the 1980s, uh, his work seemed, um, any book that was called sort of, you know, with the title planning, uh, with, uh, with the word planning on its title, you know, would have seemed certainly uh, anachronistic then. Um, but of course, uh, I think, uh, you know, in, the, in, a, in a longer stretch of time, his views have held quite well, uh, that we have now come back to understand that, in fact, uh, Growth and development requires both the market and, and the states to be effective and requires uh, partnership and, and collaboration between the private sector and the public sector. And just as the uh, excessive um, focus on the role of the government and planning in the 50s was uh, a bit too much, uh, the kind of excessive focus on market forces that was placed in the uh, eight, late 80s and 1990s probably got the balance wrong in the other direction. Uh, that that um, uh, even though he, he was written, writing in the 1950s, um, certainly by the end of that decade and early 60s with his experience in Ghana, Ghana having seen um, sort of how uh, Nkrumah um, ran the economy to the ground and bad economic management, he certainly was very aware uh, of, of um, uh, um, sort of how bad policies or government failure could really uh, ruin the economic prospects of, of, of a country. Uh, but he never uh, sort of went sort of uh, the full whole hog uh, market uh, uh, way, saying that, that all you needed to do was, uh, uh, was let market forces work. Um, I remember his term, good government, was one of the, uh, the three things that he thought was, was important. Um, Fourth, and, and this may probably be the one that will be the least uh, familiar uh, even to those who, um, who, who know Sir Arthur's work well, um, I think uh, when we look at his work from the perspective of how you should do economics, I think it's quite interesting that he was one of the first development economists um, who were thinking um, in explicit general equilibrium terms in the way that they were producing their analysis of the growth process. Um, now, uh, Arthur Lewis was never a person for a lot of math, so you know, it's not, he didn't have uh, formal mathematical models. Uh, but if you read his 1954 paper, you read his work on the, uh, on, on the, um, on the terms of trade and the, and the uh, first era of globalization, it's very clear that it, he has thought these things through in terms of simple, stylized, general equilibrium models. In fact, in his work on the, um, on the um, uh, global trading regime before the uh, uh, First World War, is very explicit that he's thinking about a model in which there are two countries, um, uh, three goods. Uh, he never lays out uh, the formal machinery, uh, but he's thinking in terms of... of uh, of, of uh, um, uh, formal stylized models. Uh, I had an interesting experience in my first year when I had arrived at Princeton, um, and uh, um, I, I uh, was taking this course, but he also gave one of the research seminars uh, that was attended by the economics uh, faculty. Um, and he presented uh, some work that was related uh, to this uh, model of the determination of the uh, international uh, terms of trade. 
uh, and uh, based on, on, on various commodity patterns of specialization, differential labor productivity in agriculture in the north and the south. Um, and uh, it was, a, it was a, um, a, a, uh, an informal talk, again, sort of was, was driven by uh, his, his stylized model in the back of his mind. And then there was a, a young assistant professor uh, recently appointed to the faculty uh, and the Department of Economics, who later became a big name in the field. I was sort of sitting there and scratching his head the whole time. And then uh, after Arthur Lewis was done, um, so he, he got up and he said, you know, he said, I was listening to you the whole time, and I was really, really confused. I couldn't understand. But now I think I understood, I understand what you were doing. So he, goes, he went to the board, picked up a chalk, and wrote three equations. Um, and he said, now I see what you're saying. He said, there are three equations, three unknowns. This is exactly what you were doing, and this is what um, your, uh, your, your, your explanation uh, was. And all this while, um, Arthur Lewis was sitting there with a bemused smile on his face and, and, uh, and thinking, what is this guy doing? Wasn't that obvious? Um, from from there, that, actually, I learned something very important, uh, which is about the role of, of uh, mathematics uh, in economics. And the lesson from uh, what I observed that way that day is something that I keep repeating to my students, um, is that you know, in, uh, the reason that economists use math uh, is not because economists are, um, are smart. Uh, it's because they're not smart enough. Um, and, uh, and, and the problem here was that, that uh, Sir Arthur was smart enough that he could have solved all of that in his mind and didn't have to sort of lay it down in the form of equations. Most of us need the equations, um, and that's why uh, we sort of uh, check the consistency of our thinking with, with, with the equations. Who was the assistant <laughs> Uh, um, I'll tell you after the uh, <laughs> lecture in, 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 in private. Um, the, um, I guess the final thing I would say about, um, uh, about Arthur Lewis is that uh, he was very special also because he was one of the very few uh, pioneers of development eco uh, economics that, who actually um, came from a developing country. Um, I think uh, probably he was alone in that uh, respect, uh, along with uh, Raoul Prebisch, uh, the only other person I can think of who's a contemporary uh, from a, a developing country. And I think that that sort of uh, you know made him not just a role model uh, in, in so many different respects, um, but also sort of gave him a certain kind of attitude, um, if you will, about uh, um, that was a, a wonderful counterweight to the often condescending, um, sort of disparaging way that uh, uh, northern economists would look at developing countries and would tend to think of their problems as such. And he would, always, he would often repeat this, this thing that he said that my mother uh, taught me that if they can do it, we can. Um, and I think he got that right. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Paul. We've already had a question from the floor from Robert Wade, if you're wondering who it was. Uh, even if Danny hasn't yet told us who the young professor was at Princeton. I guess Krugman, but I might be wrong. Um, uh, well, I think what we'll do is just open it up to the floor now and uh, put your questions to, to Paul and to Danny, and they will doubtless sort of converse with each other as they answer your questions. So 
Should we go for two, two or three at a time? Hands up. Good. Uh, got one there. What should happen is a microphone will come to you. Yeah. Uh, if you could just say who you are and try and keep your question fairly short, that would be great. Um, my name is Selina Hofstetter. I'm an MC in political economy student at LSE. Um, you said that Professor Lewis mentioned that good government is a necessary um, condition for economic development. My question would be, from the perspective of econo uh, development economics, is democracy a necessary condition for a good government? Thank you. Good. Yes, the gentleman there. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, Bill. Thank you uh, for a great lecture so far and one of the best summaries for the causes of growth I think I've ever heard, uh, which was uh, just delivered literally in a few minutes. Uh, my question is because I'm uh, focused on a PhD on the question of growth, uh, there's a lot of excitement here at LSC and, and worldwide in economics on the ideas of physics and thermodynamics that we can produce better, simpler equations to answer these questions definitively. And um, it's great to be that there's so much excitement here at LSE about this. I was just wondering, how do you think that we can pursue that? How do you think we can bring more physics in? Because Newton, this guy, came along, very simple equations, explained 90% of what happens out there. Maybe we could do something quite powerful with economics as well and answer definitively the question of growth. Thank you. And we'll take a third one, gentleman at the back. Hi, I'm Ramin, a member of public. Uh, today, uh, institutions means many things, you know, from democracy, culture, rule of law, central bank. Don't you think that this concept of institution is suffering from an overstretch? Thank you. Who's going to go first? Danny. Why don't we, I, mm. I, I, I start and, and Paul can... Uh, which can come in. Uh, three big questions, and then in, in view of, of, of time, let me just you know sort of telegraph uh, the kind of, of answers that, that uh, I might sketch out if I had more time. Um, I think on, on democracy and its relationship to, uh, to development, uh, if you think about development in a, in a sort of a really broad sense, including uh, social and political development, then it becomes it, it's a no it's a no brainer that that uh, uh, it, it's a it's a part of of, uh, of of development in that broad sense, and therefore one cannot really think of of the absence of you know that that countries can really become fully developed in the absence of democracy. If you think about uh, development in a narrower, uh, purely economic development, economic growth sense. You know, we know that, that a fair amount of growth is actually quite possible without uh, democracy. But we also know that, that uh, it becomes harder to uh, become uh, past um, sort of the middle income level, upper middle income level, uh, that, that uh, it becomes much harder to get into those higher reaches of income without democracy. So uh, I think it depends partly on, on, on how you think, what, what aspect of development you're thinking. Uh, physics, um, you know, and Newton, and, and, and sort of, I, you know, I'm not sure physics has has many good um, has has as relevant models for um, for economics. I think, and, and what I'm going to say is actually true uh, to some extent in physics too. Uh, you wouldn't want to, you know, you wouldn't apply Newtonian physics um, to um, sort of how things work um, at the micro level. Um, and I think there is a certain analog with that in, in economics that the right way to think about models is not that we're going to you know, 
you know, eventually arrive at the one right model that you can apply everything. Um, I think every model captures a salient aspect of the of a reality, and I think um, uh, the way that economics actually works um, is not by you know newer, better models replacing older, worse models, but actually by having a horizontal expansion of models where we have a better uh, ability to explain and understand a variety of social experience, um, and 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 so in in that way of understanding how economics works is, is we never, you know, the idea that we're going to be arriving at the one model is, is not only misleading, it's actually a hindrance to our understanding. What we need to do a much better job of is actually figuring out how we navigate across the various models that we have. Uh, so the dual economy model is relevant in certain settings. The neoclassical growth model is relevant in other settings, and we better know which model we're going to be applying to where. Uh, but it's not that one has replaced the other or that it should. Uh, institutions, yes, overstretched, absolutely. I think we're doing a little bit better on that now. We're unpacking it. Uh, I think, um, you know, sort of, um, uh, but yes. Yeah, okay. Is democracy a necessary condition for development? Surely not. I mean, um, most obviously China, um, Singapore, Singapore, um, now considerably richer than Britain, um, you'd stretch the term to say it's a democracy, I think. Um, the, um, but I think it's more serious than that. Um, I work a lot of the time on post-conflict and fragile states. Um, and we've, the West has, I think, been really overconfident in saying that the solution to these uh, contexts is, uh, is multi-party electoral democracy. Um, and what, what that does in practice in these post-conflict fragmented societies or divided societies um, is the, uh, the only way multi-parties can be organized is that um, they, they reinforce the, the, the divisions that are there. So each ethnic group or religion becomes a political party and then in multi-party democracy what's, what you do you, um, you, you campaign uh, against each other and so the narratives that get disseminated are basically narratives of oppositional identities and abuse vilifying the other um, and yet in these societies what actually needed is some, the emergence of some sense of shared identity. And shared identity does not grow out of multi-party, abusive, uh, competitive politics. So I think we've, been, we've greatly uh, exaggerated the role of democracy in these contexts. The theory, of course, is that uh, elections um, produce the holy oil of legitimate government um, they don't. The only people who think of elections producing legitimate government is A, the winner, and B, the donors. Um, and everybody else... Um, you know, I, I would rather see a process in which legitimacy is earned very gradually through performance and delivery to ordinary people rather than some instant magic of, a, of an election. Um, 
equations for growth. I mean, I, I, I think you know, economics has had its flirtation with physics. Um, what it now needs, um, not just a flirtation with, but a prolonged marriage, is with psychology. Um, and, we, and it started. It started. But I think it has a long way to go um, to, 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 to get at the benefits of the, the insights of modern social psychology incorporated into, into economics. Um, institutional overstretch, very much so. Um, the, um, uh, um, and that's, as Danny says, that, that's starting to be realized, really. We're starting to unpack what we mean by institutions. Me, let me give you one very basic distinction um, which I, Douglas North, great Nobel laureate, but he got us off to, I think, to a disastrous start on institutions by saying institutions are the rules of the game. Well, no, actually, um, if you think about it, rules are the rules of the game. <laughs> um, what institutions are is teams of people with a mandate and capacities. Institutions have to be built, and a lot of countries, certainly the ones I work on, have things that look like institutions but actually don't function. Any legislature can produce rules, but rules without supporting institutions, institutions that actually have a proper mandate, a dedicated team that's internalized the objectives and has the capacities to implement those rules, rules are a dead letter. So there's a lot of unbundling to do. You know, Doug North, uh, it's interesting, made a distinction between institutions and organizations. And I think in, in many ways um, he was thinking of this kind of... This, you're right that yeah, I think yeah. you know, people sort of uh, you know, you know, often uh, conflate them. Uh, but I think he, he's, he's, his thinking on institutions was that you know, it goes beyond organizations. It's also it's a very cognitive element to it in terms of, of uh, things that are in people's mind. But I want to take you up on democracy. I was a bit surprised. <laughs> I, 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 you know, this, this is the second time I'm hearing you get very, very down on democracy but you know in a way you know you, you, it's like it was unfair because you, you 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 compared democracy as you observe it to some ideal that you would have you know preferred it to um, the question of course is what do you get when you know it's not every you know you, you don't get um, uh, you know Singaporean uh, um, you know platonic guardian uh, you know so that's not really the alternative but to make it more concrete I mean isn't Ghana today a, a better country for uh, being democratic um, you know wasn't democracy, democracy important to Mauritius um, even just you know taking off and, and, and didn't so many authoritarian regimes grow up so badly in Africa absolutely so don't push me into a corner where I don't want to be um, uh, <laughs> But, um, uh, but, but let's, let's, let's take Ghana. Um, um, we could take the two, sort of in a way, best-functioning democracies on the, on the basic criteria of democracy in Africa are, are Ghana and Zambia. Both countries have had um, peaceful elections in which the government has lost and accepted the defeat and has been a change of regime. And that's happened repeatedly, both in Ghana and Zambia. Um, but um, 
both are currently facing macroeconomic crises um, because uh, both had valuable natural resource booms, uh, a copper boom in Zambia, an oil discovery in Ghana, um, and both of them grossly mishandled um, these opportunities. Um, so that even before the commodities crashed, um, they needed emergency IMF programs. And that was because um, democracy works as, as long as you build a critical mass of citizen understanding about the basic choices. Um, and in both Ghana and Zambia, that didn't happen. The narratives pushed out by the competitive political parties um, were basically very short-termist narratives that um, we'll spend more of this windfall than, than the rival. And so both countries embarked upon, instead of investing um, out of the booms, they went into the sovereign debt markets, borrowed heavily, and uh, raised public sector wages enormously. And so um, even, in the, even, in the, even in the best, there's some downside. Now, would I, would I wish them back to their dictators? Definitely not, right? So, so certainly there's a... As you think, I think you were implying, that you can get some way without democracy, and at some stage it's sensible to, to evolve into democracy and then gradually build an informed electorate. And there we're, there we're on the same page. But I think um, the attempt in fragile states to force electoral competition is, a, is often premature. It's based upon a naive model in which we use elections. The real reason we use elections is the UN sends troops in, nobody wants to provide troops, and we need some milestone for getting the troops out. And the milestone is hold an election, anointed government, legitimate, everybody accepts it, bye-bye. You can come back, Danny, but let's go for another round. <laughs> I mean, I know you will do. Robert Wade had his hand up first, and then the gentleman at the back, and then we'll go upstairs. The Robert's uh, down here, right at the front, uh, blue T-shirt. Thanks. Um, I was struck that Paul said that the route for economic outreach was psychology, but not apparently sociology, anthropology. Um, but my question is this. Um, what do you think Arthur Lewis uh, would have thought about what happened to the development agenda of the World Bank over the, in particular, 1990s and the 2000s, when it moved right away from the idea of development as production transformation? The term industrial policy became absolutely forbidden within the walls, wall, walls of the World Bank, and the focus came to be on poverty reduction, on um, health, on the social agenda, and on good governance. Not, go not good government, but good governance, um, whatever that means. Um, and um, so what w would he have made of that? My question is a pointed question, because for part of that period, um, the director of research at the World Bank was none other than Paul Collier. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. Uh, a, I think it was a... <laughs> The young man at the back, and then the, the, we'll, we'll, go to, we'll go to you and you. Yeah. Um, you so I have a question. Uh, well, first, my name is Pedro. I'm a Master in International Political Economy here. And uh, my question is to Hadrick on the response of democracy, actually. Uh, I'd like to 
Oh, here, here's opinion on China in that sense, because if he believes that it's not possible to achieve a high income level uh, from a non-democratic state and uh, all this prediction saying that China will overcome the U.S. economically and politically in the se several decades to come, um, how do you think it will play out if China will eventually change for a democracy or just the growth will stop at some point now that's in the middle income trap or lack of legitimacy. Thank you. Maybe if it's easier to that gentleman and then could we bring it over here um, to near the front and we'll take that four. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I'm a master's student here at the LSE. Uh, Professor Roderick talked about three ingredients that uh, Arthur Lewis talked about as uh, key to development, which was decent secondary education, adequate rainfall, and good government. Assuming uh, adequate rainfall and good government are just random, uh, I see that decent ed secondary education and good government seem to have some sort of simultaneous relationship. So if the public sector were to provide education, how does it get over the problem of motivation, which Professor Collier talked about? And if the private sector were to provide uh, secondary education, Education, that would have its own issues with with uh, a developing country. So how do we get around that? Thank you. Probably got time for one last one. Thank you. Um, my question to uh, Professor Paul and Professor Danny would be regarding cultures, traditions, and customs, and their impact on both institution building and governance structures. Um, I would like to hear your views about it. Thank you. Cultures, traditions, uh, impact on institutions. Um, yeah, I, I suggest, for once, rather than just as run through the four questions in turn, we start a debate on sort of industrial policy, Africa, China. Just um, as a start, we'll get we'll get to the other questions, but um, it, this is really not 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 because it's controversial. There's a real really important question here, which is, can Africa industrialize in the next decade or two, and what policies would be best suited to achieving that? And that's a, that's a really fundamental question. Um, I suggested that because China was hyper-competitive, actually, over the previous 20 years or so, there wasn't much that Africa could do, but now it's got an opportunity. But Dan is the ex expert here, so over to you. <laughs> you can take the other questions as well, if you like. <laughs> I, I agree. Actually, I agree with Paul that this is a, a fundamental question. I, I, I have become a bit of a, um, a pessimist on the prospects for uh, industrialization uh, in, in Africa. I mean, uh, I, I've recently done some work um, uh, and, and uh, written a paper called Premature Deindustrialization, uh, premature deindustrialization is actually a term that was first used in Britain uh, to explain Britain's deindustrialization uh, in the in the in the 70s. Uh, but it's, it's, it seems like a much more appropriate term today for um, uh, for low-income countries, low and middle-income countries that are becoming um, that are deindustrializing uh, at levels of income that are really a fraction uh, of the uh, income levels of. Uh, not just um, the, the first wave of industrializers, Britain, Germany, the United States, and so forth, uh, but also sort of the second wave of South Koreas and, and the Taiwans and, and so forth. So there's something very fundamental that's going on that countries are 
um, are, are, are becoming uh, um, the, the prospects for industrialization, uh, except for uh, China and a bunch of Asian countries that, as you say, got into the game relatively early, have become uh, much harder. Uh, it's really a combination of technology and, and globalization, and the globalization is that, you know, China having been there before, and then sort of with you know, Vietnam and a few others, it's really much harder for African countries, even as China is withdrawing. China is such a huge country, even as withdrawing in these markets is actually finding it harder. Um, but also, you know, technology-wise, what's hap- happened is that, that uh, the technology of, of uh, manufacturing has become um, much more capital and skill intensive, which means that um, its ability to absorb a lot of labor in the traditional you know, export-oriented industrialization style is much less now uh, than any time in history. And because of its skill and capital requirements, its, you know, in, its requirements in terms of, of capital and skill has never been further away from the country's own factor endowment. So there's a huge gap now between what it takes uh, to industrialize compared to sort of what the basic resources that countries in. So that that and you know, without taking too much time and going to it, but I, because I, I also want to hear your take on you know African Africa much better than I. There's certainly some success stories. I mean, it seems to be something going on now in Ethiopia and so on. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's it will be interesting to see how much they shows up in the aggregate numbers. But the aggregate numbers to date have not been over the last 15, 20 years have been quite disappointing. If anything, declines uh, certainly in employment, but also in in, in value added at constant prices. But what do you think? Um, I think uh, there may be a window of the next 10 years or so before the, the robots come along and, and make the, just kill off the whole sector, as it were, which is kind of your worry, isn't it? Um, uh, Addis, so it's, it's not that Ethiopia is industrialising, it's that Addis is getting a, a hub. And the reason it's getting a hub is it's, it's got a very good transport hub by air that um, Addis is, a, is an air hub for Africa. Um, the, uh, uh, so other than Addis, it's probably going to be coastal cities. Um, Africa's got some very finely located um, coastal big cities. You know, Dar es Salaam on the east coast, Lagos on the west coast, um, could become, could break in. They've got a better location than East Asia, actually, for, for the big European and North American markets. Um, and why I spoke about cities is I see the big constraint as not directly industrial policy at all, but the policies of, of getting those megacities right. And you know, at the moment, uh, they're really not right at all, but Lagos, over the last seven or eight years, um, has improved considerably. It shows that stuff can be done. Um, if you can't get in and out of the airport in Lagos. Yeah. <laughs> if you think it's bad now, think what it was like 20 years ago. You know, um, the, um, uh, And these things can improve quite, quite substantially. Um, Rwanda is a good example of where... Um, you, you've really improved the, the basic functioning of the state. It's just that, unfortunately, Rwanda is neither an air hub uh, nor on the coast, so it's a completely unpromising place for industrialization. But if you've got the sort of um, effective basic state functions that you see in 
Rwanda, and to an extent that you see in Ethiopia, if you got those in any one of Africa's coastal megacities, I think there'd be a chance of breaking in. Just a little story about you know, how I think the, the nature of industrialization in Africa today is different from the, the classic pattern. Um, I heard this um, Chinese investor in Ethiopia who is actually has, has, is running the largest uh, shoe factory um, in, in Ethiopia. Yes. Um, uh, and, and, and she described um, that uh, sort of when they were starting up in, uh, in, in, uh, in China, uh, their factory, the only requirement for their workers that showed up for, an applica- for a job application for a job was that you know, they asked them to, to, to do the following test. So I want to get this right. Um, so, you know, whether if the applicant could do this, um, then he or she was qualified. Um, so that was the only test that was applied. Uh, it was very simple, basic eye-hand coordination. That's the only thing you needed to work in. In Ethiopia, there's sort of a long line of university graduates who are waiting to get a job. I mean, it is a completely different kind of, uh, of a system um, and the kind of... of uh, um, and, and I just, my difficulties, I just don't see um, any possible path where anything near the kind of, of labor absorption into manufacturing that we had in East Asia uh, that we're, we're actually going to see. But it is, I, I hope, I, 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 may, I may be wrong on this, but do we have time maybe just to open up more? Or? If we could take maybe... Not that we actually answered those <laughs> questions. <laughs> We'll take two last questions because I've been told to keep pretty close to quarter to eight tonight. So, gentlemen down here and then right in the middle, sir. Yeah, we'll come to you if we start down here. Hi, um, Alex McGilvery from CDC, and I guess in its previous incarnation as Commonwealth Development Corporation, probably invested in St. Lucia. Um, and I don't know what Arthur Lewis thought about CDC, but um, maybe we can talk about that later. But in, if, if so, CDC these days is meant to invest in, in agriculture to create jobs, and so so we appreciate that it's difficult to find manufacturing opportunities. And so I'm just thinking about this proposition about building cities or rebuilding cities or or um, creating a good environment for development to happen. It might be services, not manufacturing. But what what specifically could investors do? in terms of the, this sort of urbanisation agenda and, and what, what could be transformative because it's, it's not quite institutions, it's not quite investing in the private sector, it's somewhere in the middle, I think. Thank you. We'll take the last one. Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Ubedi Amedu. Actually, my question is similar to that. Um, in watching your opinion, do you think that you know, developed economies you know, have a part to play in, in ensuring the convergence of um, develop, developing economies um, especially in terms of fighting corruption, which I think um, is the main problem. It's the main problem to um, to fighting, you know, the motivation issue that uh, Professor Paul spoke about earlier. Thank you. Great. Two last questions then. Well, just say, you know, I'll just make one very quick remark in, in, in relation to sort of uh, Arthur Lewis's take on, on these kinds of questions and then uh, have leave uh, Paul for the last words, especially about... Um, how what investors should look at. I think one of the great things about um, Arthur Lewis uh, is, is that I really appreciate is that uh, he always thought that it, it, it wasn't the job of the outside world um, to help enable, allow 
uh, the developing countries to grow. He really felt that it was going to be the job of the developing countries themselves, and that's what's going to be to, to actually really matter. Yes, so there are many things that the outside world can do uh, to provide a more enabling environment. Um, uh, to um, you know, not provide uh, sort of uh, military uh, sort of um, arms uh, to ensure that that civil wars don't get as uh, that deadly, not to provide tax havens for the uh, uh, for for um, you know rich um, uh, people who want to sort of get capital flight. Uh, um, uh, not uh, sort of uh, take a serious um, uh, line on corruption and so forth. But ultimately, I really do feel that these are uh, that that whether countries get develop or not, grow or not, are not going to be determined by what the rest of the world does, uh, but what developing countries themselves do, as we can see from the fact that um, against the background of similar external conditions, everybody has gone through the same kind of globalization. Performance has been so varied and so heterogeneous across the world. I think that just shows that it's really, the work has to be done at home. I very much want to agree with Danny that these are fundamentally domestic processes, domestic struggles. And the the first thing that outsiders should realize is that we're bit players. Um, We can make things a bit worse, we can make things a bit better, but we cannot develop them. They will develop themselves. Um, um, I actually had a... I'm I'm completely apolitical, but... um, David Cameron reads my work, and so when it came to the British G8, um, he, he asked me for advice on what the agenda should be. And um, uh, it, it was basically uh, private sector investment and, um, and what we could do on the, on the governance side. And the, the private sector investment, I think the future of aid is vehicles like CDC. I think CDC is an enormous, and IFC, this class of agent where you can, uh, you can get public risk capital at, to um, basically get private capital to go to places that it's not quite ready to go to. Um, some of the things that would be really useful, um, uh, get some uh, affordable housing for ordinary people, you know, not the high-income housing the private sector wants to build, but affordable housing for ordinary people. Um, uh, get some transport infrastructure. Um, and bring in the private sector, the effective organisations that are so scarce. Um, On dealing with corruption, um, so what I tried to suggest on the G8 was don't preach. That was my first rule. Please don't preach, right? Don't preach democracy, right? One One African leader said, if the G8 starts to preach democracy, we're going to say Berlusconi. Sorry to the Italians. Um, um, uh, so so I, I said, let's just focus on putting our own house in order in ways that are also helpful to poor countries. So three things you can do. Uh, one is you tackle money laundering. Where, how does money laundering work? It works through shell companies. Companies that are, where you can't, get the benef- you can't discern the, the beneficial ownership. Where are shell companies set up? The epicenter uh, in the world for shell companies is London. Um, I had a meeting with the head of this, um, I guess it was a serious uh, 
as a serious fraud, fraud office. office. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, I, I showed some survey data to him, and he said, no, 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 it's, it's, it's not Britain. Um, this was global survey data. Anyway, I managed to get global survey data showing that the majority of these bloody shell companies were set up in London, and it was a n- very neat, randomised controlled trial where they, they sent out thousands of emails to lawyers around the world saying, please, can you set up a company, and I'll pay you extra if you can hide my own ownership of it. And they got, uh, I think, 40% of the yes responses were from London. So, um, uh, so tackle shell companies, tackle uh, corporate tax avoidance. And mercifully, um, Starbucks, who deserve a development award, had just happened. And uh, so every London taxi driver was talking about Starbucks corporate tax evasion and clearly if that's happening with the British Treasury think what's happening in a poor country with some tax department facing uh, you know, these, these big uh, natural resource companies um, and the final one was get transparency uh, into corporate payments which was EITI astoundingly and Britain had launched EITI in 2003 Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative and Tony Blair, who launched it, um, hadn't even signed it. Um, and so when I told David Cameron that Tony Blair had launched something but refused to sign it, um, that persuaded him it might be a good idea to sign it. Um, and in the end, five of the G8 countries signed it. So, um, but that's all in the context of we are bit players. We should do the things that make things better, not the things that make things worse. But we cannot substitute for these domestic processes of struggle. Thanks. I'm going to invite you to uh, put your hands together in the usual way shortly. Just let me offer quickly uh, four sets of thanks. So first of all to LSE Events. We do have the best public events program in the world at LSE. Um, I should have said at the beginning, it's true, I should have said at the beginning uh, that we podcast these things, so we'll make sure this is sent to Milan or Rome or wherever uh, Mr. Berlusconi is currently uh, in residence. Um, Secondly, to thank all the audience uh, for being here. It's right at the end of the term at LSE, so it's a great turnout. Very nice to have people from outside the school as well. And thanks to everybody for their questions. Thirdly, um, huge thanks to Paul and to Danny. I think we had a, a really wonderful discussion tonight and a great sort of riffing between them around some fundamentally important issues relating to economic development. And lastly, if I might just say more personally, I actually first started teaching Arthur Lewis's work back at the end of the 1970s. So for me, it's a very great honour to be associated with an event in honour of Sir W. Arthur Lewis. He was, I think, uh, a very great man. He was a student. He was a faculty member here at LSE. He was involved in planning. He became a critic of planning. And, of course, he ended up at Princeton winning the Nobel Prize. And all of us here at LSE are very proud of him and we're delighted to be honouring his life and his work this evening. So thanks, everybody. Thank you.